0: Welcome to the MRI cast. These podcasts focus on various current topics in MRI. We invite you to ask questions via the website and even suggest topics for future MRI casts. The opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect standards in clinical practices, nor should they be considered as medical advice. This program is made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Bracco Diagnostics. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome again to uh, the MRI cast. This is part two in our pediatric uh, neuroimaging uh, podcast. And just like it was last time, it's the Dave Interline Show. Yes, I knew everybody would be really thrilled with that. Joining me along with Dr. Dave Interline is, as always, Dr. Howard Raleigh. Hello, Howard. How are you? I'm doing great
1: today. Looking forward to the podcast.
0: Oh, great! It's a good thing, Bill. I'm not sure <laughs> what to do with that introduction. <laughs> well, that's okay. We we won't. You can you can play it for your, your wife and children or something. Perfect. They may you make it. You know, they may enjoy that. So. We're going to pick back up where we left off uh, for in the last episode. And in starting this one, I'd like to start with some technical considerations for pediatric imaging. And one of the things, uh, particularly neuroimaging, one of the things that can be very critical and important is coil selection. So let me start with you, Dave. Do, do you have... At your shop, the, any pediatric specialty coils, any coils specifically designed for for pediatric uh, neuroimaging, brain, spine, that sort of thing.
2: We typically don't, um, you know. Even if if you you know, first off, it depends on the the, the kid's age. So mm-hmm. the the head is disproportionately large in pediatrics, and they grow rather quickly. So you're really talking about. Uh, children under age two and really moving more to the to the neonates um, typically in that group you also tend to feed and swaddle and by the time you wrap a bunch of uh, blankets around a child um, you know the you don't have a whole lot of room left uh, so we don't really do that. What do you do Howard? yeah I think we're pretty similar one thing about Uh, kids that
1: can help is that, you know, a good standard phased ray head coil uh, usually is adequate to get down into the neck, depending on how big the kid is. Um, But we do, of course, have head and neck arrays uh, that we uh, typically use for lots of things um, that are also available. And in the little kids, uh, if we need to we have sort of wrap coils that we can uh, yep. use that are flexible.
0: Yeah, the um, you know, those wrap coils and the the so-called phased array or multi-channel coils, particularly the wrap ones, one of the things that's really nice about those is that they have very small elements. And in any kind of coil technology, the thing is always going to be, be, you want to use the smallest element you can possibly get, get it as close to the body part as you can possibly get it. And so those those really do make I think excellent uh, coils, particularly for the very small children. You know, I've always it's been pointed out to me that once a child gets past a certain age, their head's about the same size as an adult, um, and so you know that really really doesn't matter. But the, but the multi-channel small element phased array type coil technology has been a big help, I think, in Doing pediatric imaging where all you used to have was just
2: adult coils. Would you, would you all not agree? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it, it's really made a dramatic difference.
1: And in the air, we, uh, we have some, you know, some of our stuff is GE, and the air coils have been really popular. And those small elephants are really good for the trunk. Oh, <coughs> sorry. sorry <about> oh, God. <laughs> oh, 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 dear. That's, that was
0: bad Uh, that's worse than anything I could come up with but I'm glad I'm glad you did (laughs) it I
2: I have no comment
0: (laughs) as you shouldn't I'm just telling you one of the things uh, there's a couple of safety issues I want to want to bring up Um, one has to do with coils and that is it is not a good idea ever to put a neonate in a transmit and receive extremity type knee coil for doing a head. Um, the reason for that, I know it looks like the perfect coil for a neonate size-wise, but the problem with these transmit and receive knee coils, they are uh, you know kind of a birdcage quadrature transmit type coil. And the software assumes that this is an extremity going into this coil. So, the SAR estimations are based on the assumption that this is an extremity. And so, this would be very problematic in terms of RF power deposition, Uh, could be in in a neonate. So, uh, I think it's important to differentiate... For everybody listening, you know, when we talk about these wrap extremity coils and things like that, those are receive-only coils, and so you're transmitting with the RF body coil. So the SAR estimates are, you know, based on that. And of course, you tell it the size and the weight of the patient, that sort of thing. So a receive-only coil is an, is not a safety issue, but that transmit and receive extremity coil uh, would be real problematic. You, you guys have any thoughts on that as well?
2: I'll you know I'll, I'll maybe I'll lead off here and I, I think that's an excellent point Bill you know historically we used to use knee coils but the the SAR really is a uh a, a major consideration and so the new coil technology really is useful to use in this age group
1: and you know in general I think in ped's imaging we really like to use high field as well meaning 3T um and there you have inherently higher potential for SAR deposition. So just where you need it, uh, you also have to control it. And, uh, of course, uh, as you as you alluded to, the software sort of automatically uh, helps to limit that, sometimes in ways that interfere with the exam, in my opinion, making it longer, spacing out the TRs and so forth. Um, and, you know, it's part of the protocol development to make sure you're sort of interleaving your your turbo and fast spin echoes, things that have a lot of 180s and, and make you very sorry. (laughs) Uh, Versus things like uh, the gradient echoes. So if you interleave those and you watch your SAR monitor, you know, both the sort of instantaneous last several seconds and the traveling average over the last six or 10 minutes, depending on how your display is set up, you'll see how those can go up and down and, um, you have to be very very careful of that at three t and you know one of my personal uh, you know angst feelings about that is when we put little kids in under sedation or anesthesia we're we're running uh in the normal mode instead of the first level controlled mode and then you've got a kid who weighs like six pounds or something and And the SAR calculations really can slow down uh, some of those things, especially the fast spin echo, turbo spin echo type sequences. And the question becomes, in my mind, is it better to follow that, which we probably should, that's the manufacturer's, you know, guideline, if you will, or would it be better to actually run them in first level, get it done faster so they don't have as much anesthesia exposure which has its own risks so it's it's kind of a balancing act and i'm i'm not sure how to fine tune and you know offset those those two things
0: well speaking speaking to that because i actually just made a note here to talk about you know normal versus first level because you know to your you know to your point yeah i'd like to do it on a 3t well two watts per kilogram on 3t is two watts per kilogram on five. so you know sar is sar to that point but you're going to it's, it, it, your, you know, the SAR estimation is obviously going to vary depending on whether you're on a one five and three T, and most equipment vendors are extremely conservative when it comes to their you know, SAR estimation algorithms. Um, and you know, the, the real issue is, it, it, well, as, as I understand it, and we did a uh, Howard with uh, the physicist from your guys' shop. I'm blocking on his, his name. Yeah, we did We did a podcast on that uh, earlier. And, you know, the real big issue is that a person dissipating the energy, you know, the person's ability to thermoregulate and dissipate that energy. If a child is under anesthesia, if they're heavily sedated or under anesthesia, that does mess with their thermoregulation. Um, just in general, do you think that's, you know, if you go to first level and you do you know, you know, put a little more RF in, energy in, you know, are they able to dissipate it adequately, you know, given the fact that they are sedated or under anesthesia. So their, their thermal regulation is kind of altered a little bit. What do you have any thoughts on that? Well,
1: I haven't been brave enough to try that yet, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I try to manage it by doing things like, um, you know, gradient echo echo planar sequences or a, uh, variable uh, flip angle, um, single shot, fast spin echo or turbo spin echo type scans, you know, that don't have quite as much. Now, SSFSC does have a lot of 180s, though. So you have to Mm -hmm. be careful. And um, like I said, I think throwing in your, say, 3D time of flight, which is a gradient echo, is relatively low SAR in between some of your Fiestas or, you know, uh, turbo spin echoes. Just to average it out, so you don't hit those limits, because some scanners will shut you down for that patient for some time.
2: Uh, the the easy thing, the easy thing, you know, going forward is, um, you know, look at the various sequences you have, try and figure out which ones are are more heavy or SAR, and then space those out like Howard says, uh, so that you can give time between the heavy SAR loads. You know, another thing we're going to,
0: we're yeah. going to talk about uh, pulse sequence selection here uh, in, a, in a little bit, but on the topic of SAR, it has been pointed out to me uh, in several uh, lectures I've attended and and stuff I've been reading the 3d, the fast spin echo sequences that the various vendors have uh, for example ge's is called cube siemens is called space uh, i believe phillips is called uh, vista um, and i can't speak to Philips so much but i can with, to ge and, and um, siemens and i've been told that those sequences surprisingly enough are relatively SAR friendly. I don't know if y'all you, you heard that or t- bring that into consideration.
1: I think that's true and it's partially based on a lot of those have uh, very long echo trains with um, with variable flip angles. So right,
0: very low very low flip angles yep. in in a lot of parts of k-space, I mm-hmm. guess. And and that does that does uh, reduce it. So that's that's one thing to keep in mind. Um the other thing that I wanted to mention from safety before we move move on into talking about, you know, pulse sequence preferences for pediatrics has to do with hearing protection. Um, one of the things that is challenging is getting earplugs into little small ear canals. Uh, even myself, uh, not that people really care, but I have really tiny ear canals and I've always had trouble with any type of earbud or thing trying to fit into my ear canal,
1: uh, because they're,
0: they're, they're little tiny ear canals. Did they also and,
1: block common sense coming in or do you find that to be a problem?
0: Well, no, I mean, it's, it's my, my wife. I, that's why I tell my wife that I, you know, I can't hear that. And the other thing is that you know, as you age, you lose sensitivity to certain frequencies. And apparently my wife speaks at just that frequency that <laughs> I just don't, I don't have anymore. I don't I'm not sure why that is, but um, she actually doesn't buy that explanation, by the way. But anyway, so, so back to the, the hearing protection thing, uh, it is actually not recommend if you cut a, a lot of people will cut your plug in half, The problem is if you cut that earplug in half, then you no longer have the uh, acoustic attenuation that's stated on the labeling of the earplug. There are um, also these little things that fit over the ear, the whole ear itself. They're called a native mini muffs or something. I don't know if you guys have seen those. They're expensive, the yellow cups that go over the ears. But if you look at the labeling, they're only rated for 7 dB attenuation, which is nowhere near what you would want. And so this is kind of challenging. I'm curious to see what you guys, if if you know what they use. One of the things that we've seen in uh, some of the MR safety officer courses that we've done, people have actually told us about it. We, We were at a site doing a safety audit. And they actually had these things. They're kind of wax stuff, soft wax that will actually mold to the ear. So you can, you know, plug up the ear with this. I mean, for all intents and purposes, it looks like very soft wax, and then of course it molds as you fit it into the ear. And these things work; seem to work pretty well. What, what's your you guys at your shops? What do they typically do for hearing protection for little kids? You know, as a, you know can't take a full earplug.
1: I think we still use the scrunchy ones for them because you can twiddle them in your fingers and get a kind of a nice narrow point to go in there. Yeah. You pull up on the ear to straighten the canal out and get that in as far as you can. But we use sort of the belt and suspenders with uh, either headphones or cups to go on top of that. And, you know, depending on the setup you may have some towels or something on the sides as well so i think the more hearing protection the better
2: yeah we we actually use the the headphones um even for the young kids and as well as uh tr- trying to get as best as possible the uh uh the, the scrunchy ones in um but uh, the wax one is kind of intriguing there is of course you know the other approach
1: is trying to make the gradients sing less loudly by using the near zero or zero te sequences uh, like silence and so forth. I, you know, I just haven't picked that up so much because at least the versions we've had take longer to run uh, and maybe aren't quite the same quality we're used to seeing. So, I mean, that would be another option though, uh, especially if there's some physical constraint to to getting uh the, the earplugs in and so forth but at a certain point you're going to always have bone conduction as well and again 3T is louder than 1.5T so uh special considerations there
0: yeah absolutely i think that's something that that's a great point that for those people listening you know part of hearing is bone conduction and there's really nothing you can do about that one last thing I want to mention, because y'all mentioned headphones, um, and this is really kind of, and I'm not picking on Siemens, but it's, it's specific to Siemens, because the Siemens systems come with uh, headphones, and uh, the user documentation, as well as what's actually in one of the more recent headphones I saw uh, listing the noise reduction level, these headphones are not rated To be used for noise reduction, Uh, you, according to the user manual, are to use earplugs in addition to the headphones. You can use earplugs only, or you can use earplugs plus headphones, but you should not use headphones only. And again, that's specific to the Siemens. For those of you out there listening who have headphones from some third party make sure that they are rated for, I would say at least 25 to 30 decibels of noise reduction. And if they are, then that's, that's great. Uh, To Howard's point, if you have to, you know, if you're you're cutting the earplugs, you got to use additional stuff. Uh, and, And even if you, you can get the, you know, earplug, you know, scrunched down and get in there, it always helps to have additional stuff on the side. So Uh, that's, I think that's important stuff for everybody uh, listening to know. Let's talk about pulse sequence selection. And we've already mentioned the, you know, the 3D. I think we mentioned that some in the last one as well, you know, just in general 3D, you can scan once and recon many. So the, you know, for T2 and T2 flare, I think if you can use a 3D sequence, that's going to be extremely useful because again you can get multiple planes the downside to them is somewhat scan time and then that's going to go back to we'll talk about planning in the middle in a little bit but that's going to go back to well how is the child sedated or or if they're sedated that sort of thing so from a general standpoint for t2 and t2 flare uh dave and howard uh, do you have any kind of favorite sequence that
2: you would like to see used if it's possible to be used? So so Bill, let me, um, let me jump back and say that there are um, quite a bit of uh, some, some people have reservations with some of those 3D sequences in general, Mm -hmm. just because of the image quality. You never quite get the same image quality in the, uh, in the other planes as you reconstruct them. So you have to focus a little bit on how those are obtained, what what is the best everyone wants to do them in a sagittal acquisition, uh simply because that's the the smallest data set that you can get, but realize that there are negatives to them as well.
0: Howard, your thoughts on that? I know you're a you're a big kind of a 3D guy.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of three D. On the other hand, uh what Dave says as always is true, um, we we like to separately get a two D uh, turbo or fast spin echo T two axial, uh, usually with fat sat, because we can really push the matrix, control the tissue contrast really really nicely, and then for the flare, we do prefer using a three D data set for a couple of reasons. One, the scan once recon mini concept, which can really bail you out. Um, After they're gone to be able to reconstruct things. Uh, Secondly, the 3D uh, sequences have a spatially non selective uh, water suppression pulse that's very robust. So, in kids where the CSF is bouncing around a lot, if you do 2D axial flares, for example, which would be a a workhorse sequence, you're going to get a lot of CSF pulsation artifacts in the posterior fossa and around you know, a frame in Monroe and so forth. And that can be confusing, especially if the question is rule out subarachnoid hemorrhage, for example, it could give you a false positive. So we really like the fluid suppression uh that's very robust with the 3D uh cube or space or vista type approach. And then um, uh, you know, it's a trade-off on the time. With parallel though, you can get a very nice looking data set that makes good recons in about four minutes, uh, using hypersense, which, or, or the similar, uh, approach, uh, which, you know, knocks down the SNR a little bit, but they still look good. And we also prefer using a T2 prep on our T2 flares to sort of bring out more gray white contrast in those, uh, in the kids. And that, you know, another thing that has to be said quickly is it flare isn't great for baby brains, uh, up to about two, you know, when they're still myelinating, but we still have it in the protocol. It's just you hang your hat on the, the regular conventional T2s to look at the myelin, the T1s and the T2s.
2: And some of the, um, uh, like MP Rage uh, has some utility in the young kids as well. The, it's very difficult where you just don't have the myelin yet to to get the same image quality.
0: You know, and that's that's kind of an important thing I think for people to list uh, to take home lesson from this. So when you're when you're talking about pulse sequence selection, um, one size doesn't necessarily fit all uh, in terms of advantages to various types of pulse sequences. So, for example, in a flare, if you had your druthers, three D is is better. To Howard's point, because of the not the the volume is non-selective. So you're going to invert everything out even outside the the slice group. And so you get much better CSF suppression, particularly in the lower slices. The problem with the 2D, I'm sorry, T2, um 3D acquisition, so the T2 uh, cube or space, is that the the contrast between gray and white matter is not exactly what you get with a standard 2D uh, type uh, FSE, T- Turbo Spin Echo type thing. And I've seen, heard a lot of people comment on that, that, that while it's it's great to have multiple planes from a single acquisition, th- the gray-white contrast on a T2 3D of the brain is not exactly the same thing you know, that you would get with uh, with the 2D. And, and this just came to my mind as well. One of the advantages of 2D acquisition is the ability to use the motion reduction techniques such as propeller and blade. And they have other names on other vendors. Uh, and for pediatrics, that's not insignificant. Would you not agree?
1: Yep. I totally agree with that, Bill. And You know, the discussion also brings to mind how you can turn an artifact into a useful uh, sign of pathology or not. For example, we don't use a lot of the 3DT2s because it's not great gray-white, but what we do is we intentionally get those in the sagittal plane ungated so that the CSF pulsations cause robust dephasing in the aqueduct and in the basilar cisterns and so forth. So it's a great way uh, to check for CSF pathway patency without going to the trouble of doing, say, a phase contrast and trying to figure out if there's aliasing and all that sort of stuff. So a Sag T2 at twos or threes, uh, volume ungated. It's just a beautiful way to follow after third ventriculostomies or if somebody has hydrocephalus, you want to know if the aqueduct is patent. There you use the CSF pulsation as a form of image contrast, actually.
0: It's, it's interesting you'd point that out. Now, this is off topic sort of, but back in the old days, way old days, um, back in the 80s or, not, well, 90s, I guess, when 2D time of flight first came out, one of the things, if you if you tried to do it in the lower legs for arterial flow, they look like crap because of the pulsatile artifact because flow comp doesn't compensate for turbulent flow. And so uh, in the, you know, in, in the legs, you get all kinds of artifacts. But what that did tell you is it's patent mm-hmm. because they, they looked really pretty when somebody had a, a femoral artery occlusion. There was no pulsatile <laughs> flow.
2: There you go. Yeah, and you, know. you can still use phase artifacts like in the brain to, um, if you make the image really bright, you can make sure that the veins are, are open just from the phase artifacts. Yeah,
0: I, you know, and I think that's one of the funny things that always struck me about the ACR, one of the many things that strikes me as odd funny about the ACR site accreditation process is when they when they tell you in their directions to send them images, they want artifact free images. Well, I want world series. I want world peace and I want to drive a seven series BMW, but that ain't happening either. And and to think you can get an MR image that's free of artifact is, you know, I don't know what you've been smoking, but it ain't happening. You know, and and to Howard's point, it's not a bad thing. You know, artifacts are helpful.
1: You know, the other thing that I'd like to just throw out, um, that has been helpful for us in peds in terms of choosing pulse sequences. We start every pediatric brain with a three plane quick brain, a single shot fast spin echo T2. So sag, coronal, hmm. and we're done with that in the first minute. And if they bail out uh, <laughs> because they're moving uh, or we have to shorten the exam or next time, they can't undergo anesthesia, so you want an apples to apples comparison. Having a a quick brain type, uh, a single shot fast spin echo or haste type sequence is incredibly helpful, and it, it gets you started. And if you're checking the scan, you can at least look at gross anatomy in a you know a native exam where you don't have priors and see what you're up
2: against to help kind of tailor the protocol as well. Yeah, to- totally agree with that. I mean it's a it's a tremendous sequence. Uh, that is very forgiving with motion, um, but you can uh, you can get a lot of information in a short period of time. The other thing to know about that
1: particular sequence, at least on GE, and I suspect there's something similar. Maybe you guys can uh, educate me. But um, if if you if you're running at 3T like we are, you choose the imaging options of minimum full TE and tailored radio frequency. What that does, it actually turns it from a half-4A to a full-4A acquisition, so it's higher quality. Uh, it brings out the gray-white contrast much better, and it lowers the SAR, so it's a triple win, uh, and huh. it's about almost half the time compared to uh, the routine. So if you've got a GE, and maybe you guys can educate us if there's similar options on Siemens or Philips or Toshiba, but uh, Minful TE and Tailored RF will make make those uh, SSFSCs uh, just, the, they look good enough to eat. They're really nice.
0: <laughs> <laughs> One of the, well, it's kind of interesting on the Siemens, the, the acronym haste uh, that's an acronym. It stands for half acquisition turbo spin echo. So it is in fact a half Fourier. And so it makes sense that on a GE standard single shot would be, you know, partial Fourier as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's really good information to know. I mean, the the thing, here's another good take home lesson. Okay, folks, here's your other take home lesson from this last few seconds here, minutes, rather never waste a localizer, you know, uh, you know, you've got to do a localizer, but don't just waste, waste it, uh, do something that's going to give you, you know, some sort of information it's you know if you're going to do a scan get some information out of it i think that's would you not agree that's a good good thing to always do never waste a localizer
1: absolutely bill especially i find that especially useful in the spine where you can do a three-plane ssfsc or gradient um because a lot of times we're not getting coronals and then <laughs> you're trying to figure out what the heck's going on in some scoliosis or rotatory scoliosis case so um I'll even throw in, you know, a comment in the protocol, please get extra coronal plane localizers and you can, you can dial those in, you know, and get, get a few extra slices so that it's, it becomes part of the diagnostic exam. And also we should be looking at them because we want to catch that renal cell carcinoma or whatever it is lurking in the, in the bushes.
0: I've actually had texts say to me, and I would love to get your guys' response on this as well so I'm I'm not picking on radiologists, but I suppose I am, but, but I've had techs say to me that the radiologists and and I remember one in particular, one side I was working with the radiologist that did not want to see the localizer because they only wanted to read what they were told to look at. And I'm thinking that just doesn't absolve you from (laughs) missing something,
2: you know, no, it's, uh, um, but but bill the the concern is that um you know as you get larger fields of view um, you and the responsibility is there, you also want to make sure that you have the resolution uh to be able to see things reliably and and figure out the right way to approach it uh, and yeah, so I would agree um yeah. you know it's it's kind of like saying, well, why don't we just do the particularly for kids? Just do the, the whole body MRI protocol, and then you know that everything is imaged, and you'll get the answer for everything. Um, and so the challenge is, uh, you know, then, well, you know, why do you, need, uh, why do you need brain? Why do you need musculoskeletal or abdominal MR sequences? So resolution uh, and image quality is critical to what we do.
0: Right and I and I'm not I'm please understand I'm not disagreeing with that at all I'm just saying I think if you acquire it there could be some information there and you know if nothing else it's like this looks a little suspicious you might want to check it out kind so of a thing.
1: We we mandate that every single sequence that's run goes to PAX um cuz we feel like we're responsible for it and um so we want every single sequence it also helps us understand when there were problems with the exam or something where we had one, we were going over QA yesterday and there were three localizers. And then, you know, we looked at the room time logs and there was a gap of 40 minutes and then they resumed. <laughs> and so what the heck happened there? So, Oh, we, re- we saw some metal on the localizers. So we took them out and did plane films and sorted that out and then put them back in, you know? Yeah. So um, you find out about your processes when you when you know everything uh, from the localizers, it, it under, helps you understand where time goes sometimes. Right.
0: And, and I think my point is, I think, as you know, working with a radiologist who I would consider a partner in this, um, I wouldn't want to screw him over by not showing him something. Right. I mean, you know, that would be that would be pretty bad. <laughs>
1: Yeah, could be. You can be pretty
2: bad though. Anyway, right? (laughs) I know I am in other ways at least. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) but but the um, like for if we talk about pediatric spine for a moment, the making sure that that um, coronal localizer is through an area of the uh, the image that you, I mean, through through a part of the body that you want to image is really helpful, um, particularly in the kids with scoliosis if you're not doing separate, uh, sequences. I I view the localizers
1: in MR, just like I view the scouts in CT and I'm not going to leave a case till I've seen the scout on the CT. I had a case a year or so ago with a stroke code and everything was fine on the brain and the CTA and the CT perfusion and stuff. And there was a person who couldn't move their right arm. And I looked at the scout view as I was calling the result to the ED and had a broken humerus, and I said, yeah, you know about the broken arm, right? And I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> they got triaged for a stroke code because they couldn't move their right arm, which turned out to be broken. <laughs> so sometimes it when that happens. <laughs> sometimes the corner shots are important. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's not funny, but it is funny. Anyway, um, so let's, you know, we've been hitting all around this, and this is a great lead into it. Uh, based on at least my notes here which has to do with uh, protocol planning um, planning is great uh, when you can do it and i realize there are constraints to this uh, you know like the perver- you know they send you a patient and what are you looking for and they you know come back you know pain or something or you know give you some vague thing my favorite one i wish i had a i wish i had a picture of this but this was back in the days before cell phones with cameras so i couldn't actually take a take a picture of it but when i was working at the real job at the hospital here in chattanooga the knife and gun club of chattanooga and they had uh we got a patient for lumbar spine we had him on the table And then they fax up a request from the ER for the same patient for a cervical spine. So they just added that on and the patient was already on the table. You know, we were doing a lumbar and on the, on the requisition, it has a spot there where the nurse or whoever fills in reason for the exam. And of course, that's a medical reason for the exam, but whoever filled this out, put reason for the exam patient already in MRI. (laughs) You know, I'm kind of like, you know, so I called them back and I said, do you want some fries to go with that? Um, They didn't take that very well anyway. So let's assume, you know, that you've got some information to plan with pediatrics. At least my viewpoint of it is that it is important to plan out what you need. And, you know, we talked about giving, you know, doing sequences after gadolinium, you know, because after gad is kind of the important ones that you really want to get most of the time. But planning is extremely important, not only from the coil you're going to use, the pulse sequence you're going to use, but you know what you're going to want to acquire because you have a limited amount of time. If they're cold turkey, they're only going to they're only going to be with you for a certain amount of time before they want to get the crap out. If they are, you know, uh, sedated to you know, not anesthesia, but conscious sedation or whatever you want to call it, or you know, heavy sedation, let's call it that, uh, you're limited in time. And if they're anesthesia, you're limited in time. So I think planning is important. And I want to get your guys approach, each of yours approach to planning a protocol. You
2: know, Dave, what, what, what do you kind of, how do you kind of tackle that? Well, uh, you know, the, the challenge is figuring out what they want. Um, and, um, you know, often you never find out what they want until they complain about what they didn't get. Um, so the, the, you know, how do you know, um, ostensibly they've done a physical exam if it's a trauma, so they know kind of what you're looking at, uh, and your, your protocol to, to a, a small degree varies by, by what they're, what they're trying to accomplish. You know, in the neonates, you know, you know, they're looking for, um, you know, they're looking for ischemic changes. Uh, In the cardiac pediatric child, they're looking for areas of microhemorrhages. So you need to have some sort of an SWI if you have that capability or GRE if you don't. Uh, And uh, in the situation where they're assessing hydrocephalus, that's where that haste or single shot uh f s e is really helpful uh so the, the gathering the history uh even if you're asking the the parents uh of the pediatric patient uh is really helpful to figure out what the key really is
1: yeah, I definitely agree with that, and for me it it also goes just one step beyond that it you know we all have our own particular blinders on when it comes to things and you know uh, i always try to ask myself after looking through the history or hearing the story uh is that the right question and even if it is the right question i want to be able to answer that question and everything else in the differential for that question anything reasonable so if it's uh a kid with a seizure well 25% of strokes in kids begin with seizures so I want to be able to answer not only the obvious question, but also the the ones that should be asked, even if they didn't answer ask us to, uh, to settle it. So, for me, they're in the magnet. They may be sedated. I'm going to try to answer not only the main question, but things closely allied. So don't we don't miss something important like you know meningitis or or stroke.
0: And I guess my my point in, in the question is as a general guideline for this, for, for pediatrics, you really should probably be doing a more tailored study, uh, or that should be in the forefront of your mind to tailor it. If you can figure, you know, what, assuming you can get, you know, get a good history or, or figure out what they're looking for. That's, I don't want to say it's more important than it is in an adult, but it's, you know, typically you do stuff on adults. You'll do you'll do a lot of uh, you'll do a fair number of negative brains. You probably don't do a fair number of negative pediatrics. Uh, you know, typically because they they wouldn't be in there if they weren't looking for a particular particular thing. So I, I would think
2: planning is exceedingly important in this. The the challenge is how do you get the most relevant sequences and what you need without just adding on additional sequences. Um, You know, being very wary of overall just patient throughput. um, The, you know, as Bill had talked about, getting pediatric patients through before they start really getting motion to the point that you can't get additional sequences. Um, You know, so, so knowing that history up front uh, is helpful doing the important sequences, um, you know, first rather than later, uh, as much as you can with the exception of post-contrast. Uh, and even with, when you're doing post-contrast imaging, you know, how do you do it? Uh, and how do you minimize the sequences that came before it so that you're not, you know, 45 minutes later and then starting your contrast?
1: You know, the way we, uh, We approach this, you know, we try to teach the fellows, you should have, you know, the the question answered (laughs) before you start your protocol in a way you look, look at the question being asked, look at the patient characteristics, and then you look at all the protocols in your toolbox, short, long, abbreviated, what have you. And then our first thing that we have to put down is whether we think that, you know, knowing where we're going with the protocol, can they do this unsedated? Do they need uh, you know a child life specialist or something like that? Do they need conscious sedation from the pediatric service, or do they need to go to general anesthesia to be able to properly answer the question with the protocol we need to use? so it's it's sort of a combination of multiple factors put into uh, put into play, and we have to select that so that the text can see you know, no limitations. We're just going to do this uh, kid alive and uh, cooperating versus those other levels of uh, potential sedation or anesthesia. Uh, Howard,
2: I'm going to call you on something. What is a child life specialist? (laughs) Well, we have uh, uh, specialists who are typically
1: nurses who uh, come down and prepare the child uh, for the exam, sometimes with a simulator use uh, tablets to keep people distracted. They'll go into the magnet with uh, the kids. They have a really nice dog at our, <laughs> our hospital that can put kids at ease because they can play with the dog for a little bit before they go in. Um, so it's a, a specialty uh, pediatric staff member who uh, typically is a nurse who, who knows how to keep kids uh, settled down and put them at ease.
2: That's a great idea. Are they available to babysit?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's a good idea. too. We just,
0: we just want the dog sitting right there. or You just sit here and scratch your head while I scan, you know, the, um, I have seen at some facilities, uh, where they actually have a little room with a scanner mock-up with a doll where they take the kids in there and they show them how to put the doll into the scanner and, and things like that. Um, it, it's not after, And I saw something, I forget where, what website I was reading, it you on, know, one of the usual medical websites I kind of look at, uh, where Lego had put together some sort of a little mock MRI thing or something like that. So there are things out there, uh, you know, that can help alleviate, you know, a child's, uh, you know, anxiety, I think, for something like this.
2: We, we do the, um, you know, in the old days of Beanie Babies, uh, you yeah. know, if they, they, they it was outright bribery. Uh, and you either got Beanie Babies or, or a couple cars. cars, uh, non-magnetic, of course, but, um, you know. In my day, we, we got trolls. We didn't have Beanie Babies. <laughs> Do you remember the trolls with the
1: green and the I've purple got, hair?
0: I've got a troll doll, believe it or not, I've got a troll doll on my desk over here. That I have had since I was, since before I was in the first grade. I've had this. I don't know why it's just stayed with me. It sits <laughs> on my desk over here.
1: A blast from it's, the past.
0: A blast from the past. I mean, it's you know, on the bottom of its on its feet, it's got B F because it was my troll doll. That's really sweet. And, Bill. <laughs> yeah, I know it's kind of <laughs> kind of warms the cockles of your heart, doesn't it? Uh, the um, the the other thing though, and, and Dave brought up a, a good point. Uh, about provide anything that's going to go into that room with the kid, you should provide it. Uh, Do not allow, I mean, you can have them bring outside, you know, blankets and and dolls and stuff like that, you know, and they can keep them with them until they get under anesthesia or sedated, but then you don't, do not, for those listening, do not allow stuff in that room that you don't provide because you don't know what's in it. And, uh, there's all kinds of metallic fibers that can be in that stuff. And and that can be a huge, huge safety problem. So I'm glad you brought that up. And speaking of beanie babies, Dave, if you're interested, I've got like two of those large, um, plastic containers of beanie babies from my daughter that we have no idea what to do with in my attic over here. So if anybody's interested.
2: Well, now you know what to do with them. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Um, So let me, let me bring up something that, that uh, go into something that came up here talking about brain and spine. uh, There's a couple of things about brain and spine combo, which is extremely common in the pediatric setting. And one of it has to do with, with GAD. And then the other has to do with something we talked about uh, timing out or something like that. We'll talk about that separate, but I want to get the GAD part here first and that has to do with if you're doing a brain and spine with and without at some point the kid's going to be in the magnet likely more than an hour it's easily easily possible and <clears throat> gadolinium is half-life to the urinary bladder is about an hour and a half generally speaking so after you get, pa- after you get past a certain time you got to kind of wonder yeah you know, am i losing the effect of of the gadolinium. So Dave and Howard, do you have a time point in your mind where if you go past that time, you're wondering, you know, am I, am I losing a little bit of the effect of the gad?
1: From it? As a rule of thumb, um, we've asked that if it's been more than a half hour since the injection, say you did the brain first, you're going to drop down to the spine mm-hmm. that you, uh, you go ahead and redose them. I mean, one approach to that, if you're using a high relaxivity agent, which helps in, both ways, both the brain and the spine, but you could split that dose uh, and either do half and half or seven-tenths and then three-tenths of the weight-adjusted dose for that child, you know, once you go down to the spine. I think for me, the biggest thing is usually when you think about this protocol in advance, usually you don't need the pre-contrast spine images, and that really helps the length of the exam and the efficiency because these are usually for things like drop metastases right and it's you know or even if you've just done the brain and you found a posterior fossa mass you should be ready to drop down and do a screening spine so you can look for drop mats to begin with but unless there's been recent surgery and there's an in- inherently bright t1 stuff down in the canal you can almost always figure a way to just do that as a with contrast spine and that dramatically improves your ability to move quickly and, and not have to redose. Yeah. And,
2: and I think that that's a really good point. Um, you know, usually if it's a brain tumor that we're then looking for drop mets, we're going to start with the non-contrast brain uh, and uh, then do, we would do, uh, you know, like a, a quick T1 and T2 uh, usually at a large field of view high resolution and then we'll uh then quickly go to with contrast um, and uh for the most part, that's usually two or three sequences uh in the um, uh in the spine and then go go back to the head uh, and do two acquisitions there and uh you know so our total time is gonna be. Um, you know about ten to twelve minutes post contrast uh for um uh for those patients so it it's a matter of how you plan it out and it's it's critical to to figure that out if it's a spine tumor um you know we're we're typically going to do that part uh first uh and uh if it's a brain tumor we're going to do that part first
0: and and there's that word again folks planning. Um, uh, it's, it's difficult to plan a lot of times, but you, you can't just, okay, we've got a brain spines, p. just do what our, do our full brain, do our full spine, because that's, that's a time problem from a gadolinium standpoint. It can also be a time problem from, depending on your vendor, uh, from a, uh, collective SAR, uh, issue standpoint, which is called SED, Specific Energy Dose, um or specific uh SAE, specific absorbed energy, um, which is a t- accumulation of the SAR. This is highly controversial because it it's no one's ever been damaged by just being imaged in MRI, but at some point the IEC set a, a limit on what total amount of cumulative SAR, which is typically expressed in units of uh, uh watt minute kilogram or joules per kilogram. And some systems uh, actually had a hard stop where they would stop you from scanning after you reached 14,440 joules per kilogram. This has been walked back a little bit by the IEC, and I think the hard stops may no longer exist. But at some point, you know, you may, depending on your software level, may hit this, and that's why planning is critical. And I think, Howard, that's what you were alluding to, earlier about where it stops you from scanning.
1: Absolutely. And it, it has happened. Um, not to me, because <laughs> <I'm, laughs> I I really, really uh, try to think hard before the patient ever arrives, uh, uh, how I'm going to arrange this protocol to keep SAR managed since our dedicated magnet is a 3T. And it's yeah. one of the more conservative ones on the market. And uh, boy, you, 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 you make them longer, pulse sequences are longer, and there's a lot of SAR potential. So, Thinking ahead, planning
2: ahead is really key for for this.
0: Dave, any thoughts on that, or have you ever encountered that issue?
2: Um, we don't with that. Uh, you know, where you hit some of these hard stops is, um, you know, with the medical with the devices in place, with certain SAR yep. limits, and that then that that's probably a, a whole more challenging topic. Um, so. You, you But again, you have to plan out. Is the bottom line
0: right? Planning, planning is important. Well, gentlemen, I think we have covered uh, quite a bit in this second session, and uh, I want to again uh, thank Dave Interline for participating in these last couple. Thank you very much, Dave.
2: Thank you, Bill. It's uh, been my pleasure. Speaking to you and Howard, uh, as always, and uh, this is a great opportunity, I think, for discussing some of these more challenging areas. And Howard, it's really been nice to have you here as well. <laughs> well thanks so
1: much. It's It's been great uh, kicking things around. And, you know, there's a lot of a lot of little things that, you know, you think of as you start discussing it that everybody, I think, is interested in and, and likes to hear how other folks do it. I'm not sure we're always right, but at least we, we try to always be right. And, and like you said, planning's key, especially in peeds.
0: That's, that's a, absolutely a, a true thing. So folks, once again, thank you for taking the time to uh, join us. I want to again thank Dave and Howard. I also want to thank uh, Bronco for their generous uh, support by an unrestricted educational grant for these MRI Cast. So with that, we will say goodbye. Uh, we're done. You're just gonna have to get over it. Take care. Talk to you next time. See ya. You've been listening to MRI Cast. This program is made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Brocco Diagnostics.